And today, we're hopefully going to do death happy, all right? Because <laughs> mostly death is kind of death sad, all right? But Hebrews 2, at the end of Hebrews 2, is all about death being happy, all right? Which is kind of weird and it's a bit jarring. And what I'm going to start off with today is I'm going to show you a clip from Walk on the Wild Side, because I love it, and it's just come back on TV on a Saturday night, and you don't even know what it is, do you? It is cool, all right? Ange doesn't think it's that funny, but I do. Alright, so I'm going to do everything I can to persuade you that it's funny. It's basically a whole bunch of BBC Nature docos where they've taken the, um, the, the visuals and then they've overlaid it with voiceovers. Alright, so they've basically personified the animals and, um, and made some funny jokes out of them. So uh, it, this one has something to do with Hebrews and Hebrews, I'm just going to roll it now. So this, this sets a bit of a scene, you kind of go, weird kind of scene, but this sets a bit of a scene. Hopefully uh, there'll be... A little bit lighter side, no, it's a, not so much in a humorous point uh, sense, but in a um, theological sense. I, um, my wife, uh, uh, on numerous occasions, has, t has told me I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, all right? And uh, so I wanted to tell you about some famous hypochondriacs, right? Because every time you talk about death, there's all these people out there that freak out about death, all right? And they're called hypochondriacs, okay? And uh, I'm kind of the guy, I remember... Um, Jeez, it was about 13 years ago. I went to a stress seminar in one of the buildings over in the school here. They talked about the two different types of personalities. Uh, one of them would tend to have a heart attack to die and the other one would tend to kind of get cancer and die. And the, the cancer people were the people that kind of internalise everything and sweat over everything all the time. And I'm going, oh, jeez, that's me. All right, I'm the guy that kind of kicks my toe and gets a bruise and thinks it could develop into something really, really bad. You know? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Or you just have a... You know, it's just, you know, you get a headache. And it's, it's not just a headache from a stiff neck. It's like, there could be a tumour in there, really. <laughs> just in the back there. Does anyone, anyone want to join me on that? You just, yeah, okay, a few people, cool. Let me give you a bit of a definition of uh, hypochondria and then I'll, um, I'll show you some, uh, some pictures of some dudes and tell you about some famous hypochondriacs. It refers to an excessive preoccupation or worry about having a serious illness. It's a result of an inaccurate perception of the body's condition despite the absence of an actual medical condition. Hypochondriacs become unduly alarmed about any physical symptoms they detect. They convince they have or are about to be diagnosed with a serious illness. Even sounds produced by organs in the body, such as those made by the intestines, seem like symptoms of a very serious illness to patients dealing with hypochondriasis. Is everyone with me? That's bad. That's, and you just, no, it's just wind. That's all it is. All right, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die from terminal wind. <laughs> so you're going, yes, it's true. Many hypochondriacs focus on a particular symptom as a catalyst of their worrying, such as gastrointestinal problems, palpitations, or muscle fatigue. Here we go. Here's your first famous hypochondriac. It's actually Hitler, all right? Now, Hitler had lots of good reasons to fear death because there was a lot of people that wanted to kill him, all right? But he was actually a renowned hypochondriac. Right? He obsessed over his health, even though there was actually nothing wrong with him. And when a maniacal dictator tells you he's sick, you better believe he's sick. All right? He's prescribed various medicines for all kinds of ailments, both real and imagined, such as mood swings, Parkinson's disease, gastrointestinal issues and skin problems. His uh, medicines included topical cocaine, injected amphetamines, glucose, testosterone uh, and so on. All right? He actually had a doctor that travelled with him around the place. He, uh, he was a big-time hypochondriac. Here's another classic one was uh, Hans Christian Andersen. 
big time. This guy wrote uh, stories like The Little Mermaid, The Snow Queen, The Ugly Duckling. Uh, great storyteller, but obviously with a great imagination comes great imagination about death. All right? So on a trip around Europe, he actually worried about swallowing a pin in some meat that he ate. True. A small spot above his eye, he freaked out about because he thought eventually this thing's going to cover my whole face if it keeps going, and a knee complaint that he felt might rupture. Um, his insecurities led as far as the morbid fear of being buried alive. He apparently travelled with a note that read, I only seem dead. <laughs> and this guy, Charles Darwin. This guy's a classic. Charles Darwin obviously was the guy who came up with the theory of evolution. Here's what he said. He, um, he really got carried away. He was uh, an adorable neurotic hypochondriac, the internet tells me. He loves treatment, loved treatment like uh, water cures for his ailments. He'd take cold baths, be wrapped in wet sheets. I uh, cross-referenced some of this stuff to make sure it was legit. And he, was actually, uh, he actually kept meticulous records of his flatulence. <laughs> True story. All right, here we go. I'm going to show you another clip. This is off the show uh, 20 to 1 a little while ago. And uh, basically the, uh, the show, I think, was basically about um, life-changing moments. And obviously number one on the list is death because that alters things significantly. So uh, here we go. Okay, you notice what he says at the end there is uh, the, the prescription for how to not fear death is to live in a way that you don't kind of notice it too much and you're just doing all a whole bunch of things that distract. The truth is that uh, fear of death is an issue for every single human being. And we're really, really good at distracting ourselves from actually thinking about it and talking about it. And it would probably be true to say that Western culture is probably separated from death maybe more than almost any other culture in the world. Uh, other cultures seem to actually bring death right into the centre of uh, what's going on and it's a natural part of, of the, uh, the movement of life. But in Western culture, we kind of push it out to the funeral directors and uh, we push it out of the way and we kind of uh, think that we're kind of uh, purifying it or whatever or just keeping it really clean over in the corner over there and just keeping it out of our life. Because uh, we don't talk about it, do we? I'm sure that you're not going to go to work tomorrow if you work and have a conversation about when you're going to die. It just doesn't happen because no one wants to talk about it. People go to funerals because their friends die and then they go to the wake and they get drunk so that they can forget about dying and forget about death. Um, we often stay busy enough not to actually think about it. But you know, at the end of the day, the key to a fruitful life, according to Jesus, is not actually forgetting about death, but actually having him deal with death in a way that means that you live differently. And that's actually the, the point of what I'm going to be talking about today, is how does Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 2, deal with death in a, death in a way that, uh, that changes the way that you live? Um, it's weird because the instinct of the, uh, the fearing of death is that I've just got to try and save my life somehow. And that's actually the opposite of what Jesus says you should do in Luke 9.24. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, Jesus is about you living in such a way that you actually lose your life. And the extent to which you lose your life is proportional to the uh, fruitfulness of your life. The more you lose it, the more fruitful it is. And Paul talks about this in, um, in Corinthians, I think it is, where he says, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So the amount of death that's at work in you is proportional to the amount of life and fruit that you actually produce. And the flip side is true also. If there's, 
if, if you're grasping for things and you're trying to save your life, then the chances are that you're actually not being very fruitful at all. So what happens when Jesus and death meet? Well, part of what happens, I think, is uh, we see the death of death idolatry. This is a weird thing. We talk about idolatry and unceasing worship a lot at the project here. And the bottom line is that a really critical component of idolatry is slavery. And Hebrews chapter 2 talks about how every single human being in their natural state prior to Jesus coming into the world is in slavery to fear of death. And in a weird kind of way, which I'll uh, hopefully help you to understand a little bit later on, death sometimes can become something of a God to us that determines the way that we live. And the marketing machine works extremely effectively to use this mechanism of fear of death from diets to uh, selling goods to you that will make you feel like you're immortal and you're never going to die. It's a weird thing about humans, isn't it? You can have good health for about five minutes sometimes and you can just start thinking this is going to go on forever. And it's maybe a bit depressing, but hopefully by the end of this morning's talk you'll, uh, you'll get the feeling like it's not actually depressing. There's a huge amount of hope here, but I said to some senior highs the other day, I said, your amount of time on this earth is fixed. It's absolutely fixed. And you don't get any more. Now, the grace for you is that you don't know at what point it ends. See, either Jesus comes back and it ends, or you die and it ends. It's just how it is. It's finite. I mean, it's a bit morbid, and I'm a bit of a realist, right? So I kind of get stuck in these kind of thoughts sometimes, but... Sometimes I walk up a path at the school here and I just think, I wonder how many walk, more walks up the path I've got. It's pretty morbid, isn't it? <laughs> you guys are going, really? That's why he's so positive and he makes lots of jokes. and That's why we leave the project feeling really uplifted because this guy's thinking about, that's one more down. <laughs> All right? But I think about that sometimes. I wonder how many more times I get to drive a car. You know? And then sometimes um, I think, well, the, the day comes where you buy your last car. And you buy your last house. I mean, it sounds a bit morbid, but I don't think the writer of Hebrews thinks it's morbid. Now, the people in Hebrews, the people that, uh, sorry, not in Hebrews, the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to are really on a really harsh edge when it comes to the whole death thing. You only have to flip over a few pages into Hebrews 11 and there's people getting sawn in half, burn at the stake. The Christians regularly for the first few hundred years after Jesus were being fed to lions. And people were watching for fun and they'd sit up there and there'd be lost little perfume canisters in the front row so that you wouldn't smell the, the, the flesh and the blood and everything because the best people got the front seats and so they had these little puffy things that would puff out perfume so they could sit there and watch people get torn apart um, for entertainment. That was the movies. These people know what it's like. Well, this is kind of, this is not the writer of Hebrews talking about death to a Western Christian audience that's worried about getting a cold. He's talking to people who are, maybe, maybe some of them are in jail. Maybe some of them literally are on death row and they're waiting for their day at the Roman circus where they get marched out through a gate and out marches through the other gate a bunch of wild animals, some bears and some lions. And he wants them to know that Jesus has done something with death that changes everything. And, and all of us need to live with a perspective about death that we, we know Jesus has done something that changes everything because you know what? Maybe I'm resisting the call, but you know what? I actually think one of the highest points that a Christian school or a church could get to is that one of their people would go 
to a foreign land where they don't like Christians telling people about Jesus and they'd get executed for telling people about Jesus. Like that would be a tragic day for us at the project, but if it got to that at the project and maybe five years down the track one of our people were in Iran and they got executed for just telling someone about Jesus, not for being a buffhead, right? <laughs> but just for telling someone about Jesus, I would think, well, there's something good going on in the project. Because that's someone that actually has got a different view about death than what we normally do. And I don't know what your view is about death. We don't have enough time to hear what your view is about death. But my hope today is that your view about death might actually change. And that you might see that it needs to change a little bit. Because if it does, you can see that that's actually fueling Adoniram Judson, isn't it? His view of death is different. And the weird thing is we can sit here and we can listen to a story like that. We just kind of go, I could never do that. And part of the reason maybe why you couldn't do it is because your view of death is not a biblical view of death. If it was, it would be open. And here I am, I'm, I'm telling you that I'm in the same place. Because, you know, it's like, God, I'll do anything for you, you know. And we have all these Hillsong songs, which are really good songs. I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. I'll do everything for you, except be a martyr, you know. And you've kind of got your... You just, it's like you're reading some sort of contract and that's kind of the footnotes, the fine print at the bottom. Yeah, I'll do that as long as I don't have to tell my neighbour about you because that'll be really uncomfortable and as long as I don't get executed for it. That's probably top of the list. I'll, I'll almost do anything else except for the execution thing because that'll be the last thing I'll do if I get executed. And the writer of Hebrews would say, you just need to see death differently. Does that mean that everyone here is going to be a martyr for God? Oh, makes for a pretty small church if the answer is yes, doesn't it? <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah, we're all being... No, we're not. All right? But see, death has got many, many forms and the fear of death affects us in many, many different ways. It doesn't just affect our physical life. All right? And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. We'll just read uh, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. It says here, Since therefore the children, God's children, share in flesh and blood. You see, that's us. Flesh and blood, human, finite, limited, mortal, frail. That's our nature. We're all like that and everyone dies. Everyone gets to do it one day unless Jesus comes back. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, He himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That's Christ. That's the eternal Son of God. He's infinite, almighty. He's the creator. He's the heir of all things. He's upholding the world by the word of his power. And you know what he did? He looked down on us with love And without ceasing to be God, he actually took on our human nature. This is what he did. I love this. um, John Piper wrote about um, Jesus becoming man. He said, God came down and locked himself into death row. And I think that's just such a rich analogy, isn't it? That's really what he did. He didn't have to do it. So you've got the comparison here. The writer of Hebrews is going, look at us. We're really weak. We're really pathetic. We're all going to die. The one who isn't weak, the one who isn't pathetic comes down, locks himself on death row for us so he can deal with death. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All right, let's get into it. I've got three points here today. My three points are basically, the first one is this, we load the devil's gun. All right? Um, This is what we just read out of... um, Part of this is what we just read out of Hebrews chapter 2 there, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. First Peter actually tells us that, um, that the, the devil is like a roaring lion. 
And this is probably just my way of thinking about it, but I just think, so the, the devil is like a, a roaring lion and he just walks around looking for people to devour. So this is how I see it. The devil's got an AK-47, right? And it's, there's no ammo in it. But he's walking around and he's looking for people to shoot with it. All right? And the bottom line here is that the Bible actually teaches us that we're actually the ones that give him the ammo to shoot us. All right? So how do we do that? Well, 1 Corinthians 15:56 tells us that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And if we go right back to Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of mankind, we see that, uh, that death is actually the consequence of sin. And so every time we sin, and we only had to sin once, but every time we sin, it's like us attaching another magazine to the AK-47. And it's, and it's the sin. And so the devil gets his power and he roams around and he looks for people who he can shoot. And those people are the ones that give him the ammo to shoot them with. Ted Peters goes on to say, uh, well, I should explain who Ted Peters is. Ted Peters is a, um, a, a professor and a lecturer at a Lutheran there's a few Lutherans here, they're going, woohoo, yeah, they do do some good things. Uh, he's a, a Lutheran pro- professor in a uh, seminary, in, seminary in the States. He's got this, this is probably the whole morbid thing coming up again. This is one of my favourite books. Um, it's called Sin, Radical Evil in Soul and Society. It's going cool. You guys are going, yeah, that's a kind of uplifting book I'm looking for. All right. And you can borrow it from me if you want. But... He, uh, he writes some really, really interesting stuff about the fear of death and sin and how they kind of interplay with one another. Here's a couple of his comments. He actually said, uh, death is wrong. And I think we feel that, don't we, at, a, at an experiential level. When you go to a funeral of someone that you love, you just sit there and you, this is just not right. This is not how it's supposed to be. Death ought not to be wrong, he says, but it is. Why? Perhaps we bring it on ourselves. Perhaps the wrongness of death is due to our guilt, my guilt. Perhaps death is judgment. And he suggests that underneath most of us, when we think about death, we've got this sneaking suspicion that something's coming to get me and I actually deserve it. He goes on to say that, um, he says, in the depths of our consciousness, we probably still think that Romans 6.23 is true. For the wages of sin is death. You know, there's, there's probably, if, if we're all probably to be honest with ourselves, there's probably a lot of us who just go, yeah, I kind of feel like something's coming to get me because of the stuff that I've done wrong. And there's, there's a truth about that, isn't there? And there's a biblical truth about that because the evidence is there. The wages of sin is death. I'm going to show you a, um, an ad from 1987. There's a whole bunch of you who weren't even born then. Isn't that true? Who, who wasn't born in 87? Oh, look at that. See? I'm going to show you an ad. This is when AIDS first came on the scene in 1987, all right? And it was one of the most successful uh, ads probably in the whole of history because the whole thing just totally operated on the whole fear of man mechanism that happens in people, all right? It was uh, a classic a classic ad in that sense. Uh, and it featured the Grim Reaper. I've uh, just muted a couple of things out, but don't freak out about it. I just don't want you to be distracted by a couple of festy things in there. Anyway, here it is. Pretty uplifting, eh? All right. 
The interesting thing is, I mean, it's, it's, it's working off that whole fear of death mechanism and it's really effective. And it was really effective because uh, it locks in with uh, where we're actually living and where we're actually at. Ted Peters actually makes some really interesting comments about this whole fear of death mechanism and how it actually fits into uh, the way people live and what they do. And he actually says that he thinks, uh, and I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I think they're interesting thoughts. He says uh, that, he, that anxiety is essentially the fear of, of non-being, of not existing anymore. And he goes on to say that uh, the way anxiety works in people is uh, people would rather kind of lash out a little bit at other people to preserve their own life, whether it be literal physical life or whether it be emotional life, rather than start to not exist. And he actually suggests that this whole idea of the fear of death actually underpins most of the sin that goes on around the place because it's all about us grasping at life. He uses the example of a massacre in uh, Vietnam where uh, the troops were ordered to go into a village and actually slaughter everyone in the village. And, um, and, and that included men, women, children in this village. And the soldiers remarked after the, uh, the slaughter that um, it actually was uh, almost kind of therapeutic for them because they had this intense fear of being killed and actually killing other people relieved their fear of their own death. And uh, then he actually goes on to say how this is something of what actually happens around water coolers in offices when gossip gets going and when people start hacking on each other is that this fear of non-being takes over us and it's better to actually take someone down and kind of kill someone else either emotionally or in the Vietnam sense physically than actually be killed yourself. He makes these interesting comments, I'll just show you, we'll just read through this. The haunting awareness of, our, of possible death at any moment reminds us of our limits, of our finitude. In the event that we try to transcend those limits by wishing for infinite existence, we respond to the threat of death with fear and frustration and perhaps even rage. If we find we cannot accept our own death with grace, we may embark on a path of self-delusion, painting a picture of ourselves as immortal. Sure, you've seen people that do that. Uh, Usain Bolt might be doing that at the moment. Uh, in this delusionary state, beset by rising frustration and rage, we may seek to create our own immortality by stealing life from others. Isn't that interesting? Whether through such trivial habits as harbouring resentments and gossiping about our boss, or through such dramatic action as military aggression, wherein we capture the wealth and prestige of defeated nations, we try to steal the lifeblood of others in a misguided attempt to escape the anxiety caused by the prospect of our own non-being. Whether by ourselves as, as individuals or together as a communal group, we kill, figuratively or literally, in the vain hope that someone else's death will sustain our life. Anxiety, in short, is the sting of death afflicting the living. I don't probably go the full distance with Ted Peters on the way he cashes it out, but I think he makes some really, really good points. And I think you can kind of see that mechanism taking place where people would, it's better to kill rather than be killed, emotionally or physically. So I want to really uh, try and cash out this whole sl slavery to the fear of death in the context of idolatry, because I think it is a kind of idolatry, because when... And in one sense you might say, well, it's, it's not so much an idolatry of death, it's an idolatry of life. But you know what, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? One's me continuing to exist and the other one's I'm not existing anymore. And uh, at the project here we've actually uh, described worship in the context of different 
words that express what worship is. So I just wanted to rip through a few of these and show you how death actually might be some kind of idolatry for some of us. It becomes a God that rules us because we actually desire immortality. All right? The Bible says desire God. We desire immortality. And when it gets on the top um, of the priority list, it's become a God for us. We, uh, we love life. All right? Life is good. And it's good to love life. But if loving life and being alive is the top thing, you've just made yourself an idol. We uh, trust in health and medics, don't we? I mean, there's an increasing sense, uh, I think, in, uh, in our society where a bewilderment that medical people can't fix things and the human body breaks down. Because we've got this huge trust. It's like, yeah, I've got this problem right now, but I think there's going to be a cure in two years' time. They're going to find it. A scientist is going to find it and it's not going to get me. We trust in them. And sometimes the truth is we trust in them more than God, don't we? We trust in medicines more than God. We fear sickness and death. I mean, we're not going to have a big kind of all-in conversation about it, but it'd be an interesting thing to know how many of you have been kept awake in the middle of the night by thoughts about death and fear and anxiety about death. It certainly happened to me. We obey diets, don't we? And our uh, exercise regime. I wonder how many of our diets and our exercise regime and what we eat is all about pushing death as far away from us as possible. And I'm not saying those things are a bad thing, but when they become the top thing, you've got yourself an idolatry. Uh, We long for a healthy life. We value objects that seem to provide immortality. And uh, you can actually see that in the media, that the media... And marketing in the media is all about trying to promote a life that seems like it never ends. You stay young forever. So you've just got to buy it. You've just got to buy a Jeep Cherokee and you'll be young forever. All right? That's how it works. My boys love that. You know that uh, Jeep ad that's on during the Olympics all the time? They sit there and sing it together while it's on. And it took a few times before one of my boys said, what's the dude lying on his bonnet in the rain for? He's going, yeah, that's right. But that, in a sense, that's a picture of immortality, isn't it? I can lie on a bonnet in the rain and I'm just going to be like this forever. And anyone who's older than 30 knows it's not going to be like that forever, all right? Because gravity wins, doesn't it? All right? All over the place, it wins. We pursue things that extend your life. We hope in medicine. Um, we serve our fear of death, don't we? It actually drives us and motivates us a lot of the time. And we sacrifice things to avoid death. We sacrifice food and drink that we really want to eat, but it just might mean that we lose another 10 minutes of our lives at the end of it. So you can see all of those words down the left-hand side are all words that are meant to be descriptive of what worship is, but we actually use them sometimes to, uh, to refer to death, which is a bit freaky. So... What I want to do at this point in time is I just want to pull up and uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat to someone. I'll, I'll uh, just give you a bit of a context, a bit of context to this. Um, my, uh, my mother-in-law is uh, with us at the moment and uh, she's about halfway through going through chemo. And uh, I probably, I mean, I've known a lot of people who've had cancer, um, but I probably haven't had someone quite as close as, as my mother-in-law in terms of having cancer. And so it's been interesting to watch and I got thinking one day and, and I thought, man, cancer's a bit like having death stalk you. That's what it is. Especially when the chemo doesn't cure it because a lot of chemo actually doesn't cure cancer. It just prolongs life. And it's almost like 
death is still there kind of stalking in a sense and um, I thought it'd be really good uh, to have a quick chat to someone in, uh, in the church here who uh, has been through some stuff and that's Faye Walter so uh, why don't you, um, can you give a round of applause? Yeah. talking to this is that all right excellent so uh the walters uh Faye and alan have been with with the uh the project here for a while and um prior to being at the project uh the walters and i were uh, involved in another church together in town here and uh, Faye's been through a whole bunch of stuff uh, medically over the last few years and so uh I think in the strength of uh, the last two Sundays that we've had on suffering, it's good to learn from people who've learned stuff from suffering. Um, and sometimes one of the things that you learn about suffering is it's just really hard. Sometimes it takes a while before you actually can see stuff that you've learned. But So I've sent Faye a few questions and uh, I thought we'd, we'd throw it around and have a bit of a conversation out here and hopefully it'll uh, be of help uh, to you. So Faye, can you, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey over the last few years and, uh, and your story. What, what's been happening in your story? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. I'll fix it. Um, okay, it's been a long journey. It began in 2004 when my world was turned upside down and my family's world as well. It was a time where I had to uh, face death and also the death of those who were close to me. Um, it began with a diagnosis of breast cancer that was very aggressive, uh, followed by the death of my dad one month later who passed away with the very same thing that I was diagnosed with. And three months later, the death of my auntie, uh, which was my dad's sister who had fought breast cancer as well. And um, a secondary finally took her away very suddenly and she had become my support um, for those very few months where she supported me and um, she pretty much told me I was going to get through this because look at her, she'd made it. But suddenly she was taken from me. In 2005, uh, or by that time, my life was very filled with darkness, death and grief, pain and it was very overwhelming and in 2005, a second diagnosis of breast cancer was made and I had to make a choice of which was very difficult and had it was to take drastic measures and to continue my fight for life. Mm. Um, at that point, I just thought cancer was really going to get me. I could see no hope. I could see no way out that everyone before me had died, so why wasn't I going to die? At the age of 42, uh, as a wife and a mother, I, I really didn't think that I'd be having to deal with the fact that I may never see my children marry, I may never hold my grandchildren, and that I had to start to deal with the uh, possibility of the harsh reality of death. And that was a really, really difficult time for me. And um, I didn't do it well at all. And um, God really has had to do a work in me in that regard. And um, 
What do you mean? Can I just jump in? What do you mean when, when you're saying that you didn't do it well at all? Can you give us an example of what that might mean? Um, I freaked out. I, I just I became really anxious and um, I just couldn't see any hope. It just mm. overwhelmed me. Mm. And um, I've had several health issues since that and health crises where that um, has continued on for me where I've had to continually face death, continually face the unknown, mm. continually face the uncertainty of my future. And um, it really has been a journey that um, has been overwhelmed with fear and it has been overwhelmed with um, anxiety at times and well, many times and God has just had to um, it, it's just been a journey where God has just had to work in me to a place where I could find peace and confidence in him and um, that has definitely been a, a, a thing that has taken time for me and um, yeah, it hasn't been easy. Can you tell us a little bit more? Like, how, happy to tell us a little bit more. How did God actually tell us a bit about that journey? Like, how God actually changed the way that you were handling things. How did He work? How was He at work? Um, pretty much, I was, as I said previously, I became very bitter and angry through this journey, um, particularly in the beginning, and um, I was really questioning God, and I really wanted. I just didn't know what I'd done to really deserve this <laughs> and maybe I'm just a really bad person, uh, all those sort of things and I became really angry and bitter and I wanted to know why and obviously God's not always in the business of telling us why. Mm. And um, I remember one day where I was really overwhelmed and really exhausted and um, I really cried out to God in frustration and, and it wasn't pretty. Mm. Um, and I just really felt that God spoke into my heart that particular day and that's where um, I felt a change begin in my heart where God really said I needed to make a choice I really needed to either um, continue on the road of bitterness and anger and, and just having no hope or um, choosing to let go of all the questions and just starting to surrender to him and just um, allowing him to work it for my good. And um, it obviously was a thing that took time, but by his Holy Spirit, he just really led me to a place where I found peace and that was um, in his word. It was claiming his promises over my life. Um, it was praying to him and being real and honest to him about where I was at in my journey and and some of those verses that um, really um, gave me strength and confidence was um, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your under own understanding yeah. it, it wasn't about me understanding this journey it was about me choosing to trust in him and yeah. um, how long do you, can I do you mind me asking how long do you think it took you talked about how it was a process, because that decision to let go of the bitterness and the and the struggles and and the questions and the wars and that kind of thing. You talked about that being a process. How long was that process for you? Do you think? Well, obviously, it didn't happen overnight, mm. and I not only was dealing with my own 
um, situation of illness, but I also was dealing with the grief of my own dad. Mm. So um, I know it was a process, and you, I'm probably saying about six to eight months. Yep. It was a process because I, I was undergoing treatment and I can honestly say that it was a season where I was totally numb and mm. just a robot. So, mm. um, yes, I would say mm. six to eight months, but yeah. I don't... I didn't look back in my journal to get the exact... Yeah. I do have a journal, but I didn't want to go there. No, it's OK. <laughs> I mean, the reason why I'm throwing that out is because most of us would know, not, not in that situation, that context, most of, most of us would know that one night is a long night, isn't it? I mean, not... not it, I guess I, I, I ask that because I think God often takes a long-term view and it's, it's difficult, uh, I would imagine, from, from, uh, in, in that situation to really, you know, it's, it's a long-term process to be brought to it's where God wants you to be. a lot of many dark nights and mm. many um, long days mm. where... Um, and, and I can't... Ha do I have it all together now? No, I don't, but I do have my confidence and faith in God. Mm. And it's a process. It's a, a definite yeah. process. From, it has been for me. So what's, uh, in summary, what, what's changed about Faye Walter since the first diagnosis to now? Has, it, has there been anything that's changed? What, what's God been doing in all of that? Obviously, uh, like I said before, it's been a definite work in progress. It's not something that's happened overnight and I, God is still working in my heart and in my life. And um, one thing that I really can say that God has softened my heart um, from being a bitter, angry, um, messed up person. And of course, <laughs> sometimes I still am messed up. But um, overall, I believe that God has given me confidence in him. Mm. I um, have become to understand his sovereignty. He's really challenged my faith and he's also just um, moved my focus from um, knowing God in my head mm. to experiencing God in my heart. And part of that was just learning to trust him and, um, and just experiencing his peace when I do trust him and 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 that's been really great for me. And and I can. And soon as I lose that perspective of renewing my mind and my heart to have that spiritual perspective of mm. of it, I fall into a, I crash into a pit of despair and fear. And so yeah, it's still that battle between flesh and spirit mm. goes on within me. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure it does for all of us in our own particular context. What uh, last question just to uh, throw out there is uh, on the whole concept of death, do you think your view of what death is or your, your fear of death, has that changed at all? Is it, is it still the same as what it was right back at the beginning or how, how do you see it now? Well, I am human and um, I suppose that we don't really like the thought of death but at the same time I can see hope in death. Um, mm. And um, yeah, death death is still scary in a human perspective. But when I look at it from a spiritual perspective, I can see that it's gain for me. And um, so yeah, it it is whether mm. you look at it from the flesh or whether you look at it from the mm. spiritual for mm. me. So mm. 
for me, it's an ongoing battle, really, that yeah. I have to keep that yeah. perspective. Oh, that's great. She's done well, eh? That's good. I hope you learned something from that. Thanks, bro. The, uh, the real thrill for the Sondergill family is uh, she's, uh, Faye's doing uh, 2 Corinthians 1. Remember we looked at it last week that our sufferings belong to God and that suffering always, the sufferings that we go through always have ministry in view. Well, uh, Faye's ministering to my mother-in-law and she sends texts with uh, scriptures and she's taken her out for coffee and, and so then uh, uh, June comes home and she talks about things that Faye talked about and it's it, just doing Bible comforting and, and Bible help. That's, uh, that's the bottom line. So uh, I think it's great. I, I think that's how it's meant to work. So The second thing is that um, I want to cover today is that, is that it was necessary that Jesus actually become one of us so that he could deal with death. You see, Jesus actually couldn't die while he was still God and only God. He actually had to become human to be able to die and deal with this thing uh, that was a big problem to us. He had to come down, as John Piper said, and lock himself on death row. And this is a, uh, a little bit like, um, this scripture I reckon is a little bit like something that you see at the movies. All right? The scripture goes like this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things so that he could kill death. All right? So Jesus comes down, he takes skin on, and then he's in this battle with death which is really what's going on uh, on the cross. He's in a battle with uh, sin, death and the devil. And it's like when you watch a movie and there's two guys going, going at each other and one of them's got a weapon and the other one doesn't. And the only thing the other one's got is he's got his hands and he's holding him and the guy's got a dagger right above him and he's about to plunge it into his chest. It gets a bit gory here, doesn't it? And the other guy's just going, and you're kind of going, how long can the good guy hold out for, you know? And his arms are shaking and it's getting closer and closer. But then what happens is this strange thing happens where the, uh, the, the good guy ends up working out how he can grab the weapon of the bad guy and kill the bad guy with his own weapon. And this is what Jesus had to do. Jesus actually had to come down and take skin on so that he could die and his, his death became the chief weapon to kill death and to kill the devil. A brother killed death. Remember we talked about the fact that Hebrews 2, there's a lot of family terminology in Hebrews 2. Your brother came down and he killed death for you. His weapon was death. There's a uh, theological term called uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Does anyone know what that means? Cool. My sons do now. I talked to them about it the other day. I said, well, what's, what's substitution? And one of them goes, is that like substitute? And I'm going, yeah. What's that? And he goes, well, that means when you swap one thing for another thing. I'm going, cool, we've got that one. All right, what about, what about penal? Where do you reckon that comes from? Um, they go, well, I don't know. I said, well, it comes from penalty. What's penalty? And they go, well, that's when you get in trouble with, for something and you get punished for something. All right, cool. So punished, substituted, and atonement, I said, is to make bad things, is to sort bad things out, make bad things good. And so when we say that Jesus was our penal substitutionary atonement, he took the penalty for us, he was our substitute, and he sorted all the bad stuff out. And you actually see this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I want to read a couple of sections out of the C.S. Lewis uh, fictional classic uh, for you. I was going to show you a bit of the movie, but the movie's not quite as good as express, at expressing uh, what's going on. But The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is about four kids that end up going into this land of Narnia, 
Who's actually knows what I'm talking about? You heard of the... Okay, I'm not even going to tell you then. There you go. Now, where we're up to here is we're, we're up to the point where uh, they're trying to work out what are they going to do about Edmund because Edmund was a traitor and he went to the dark side and uh, the law said that if you go to the dark side, uh, you should be put to death. Young Edmund betrayed Aslan and his friends. You have a traitor here, there, Aslan, said the witch. Well, said Aslan, his offence was not against you. Have you forgotten the deep magic? asked the witch. Let us say I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice growing suddenly shriller. Tell you what is written on that very table of stone which stands beside us. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey and that for every treachery I have a right to kill. Does this sound like the devil roams around with an AK-47? I've got a right to kill you. I've got the ammo in there and you gave it to me. And so that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. I'm going to read a little bit more out of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe but just want to throw a couple more things in before we do. People often uh, ask the question, well, why did it have to be Jesus? Why didn't God work out a different way to save people than having to sacrifice his own son? And you know what I reckon? Do you reckon if there was another way to do it that God would have done that? Absolutely. And the reason why he had to do it that way is because I think Lewis is onto something about the deep magic. There is a deep magic in the universe that necessitates that the only way that you can get out is if God himself takes on skin and comes and gets you out. That's your only way out. He doesn't have another option, and you don't have another option. That is the only option. And it's not a matter of saying, couldn't he just have worked something else out, like made up a robot? Maybe the robot comes down and we crucify that, and it short circuits on the cross. <laughs> just go, no, it had to be his son. He had to take on skin, and he had to die. Line them which in the wardrobe... Uh, goes on, oh, what have I done? It is very true, said Aslan, I do not deny it. Oh, Aslan, whispered Susan in the lion's ear, can't we? I mean, you won't, will you? Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face, and nobody ever made that suggestion to him again. Obviously, in the book, uh, the emperor is representative of the father. What happens, as you all know in the story, is that Aslan offers to put himself in the place of Edmund and he becomes the penal substitutionary atonement for Edmund. And he goes and they, they ridicule him and mock him and they shave his mane off his head and they, uh, and they slaughter him at the stone table. And then comes a time where uh, Susan and Lucy go to see Aslan at the stone table and he's not there and the table's broken. And then they see Aslan. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. Well, what does it all mean? Asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack 
and death itself would start working backwards. This is Hebrews 2. This is what Jesus did. He totally changes death. It starts working backwards. And here's my third point for today, and this is where we're going to finish. You know, Jesus' death and his dealing with death means that you can actually die well. You see, there was an interesting thing that Faye talked about when she was talking about her story a bit, is she's actually able to see now that death is actually gain. Or maybe she can see a little bit clearer. And the truth is that Jesus' death actually enables us to start to see things about death that we may not have seen before. You see, at the end of the day, with the sin out of us, the devil can't get us anymore. It's like Jesus has come along and he's some kind of um, military policeman or whatever and he comes along and he takes the AK-47 off the devil and takes all the bullets out and now the devil's just walking around with a gun that doesn't have any bullets in it. That's where we are now. And this is what death is. Right? And when God does that, and when Jesus does that, and he takes all the bullets away from the devil, death becomes beautiful. How does it become beautiful? It's the portal into eternity. It's the portal into bliss. Yeah, it's good to live on this earth. Yeah, it's good to live here as long as possible. But this place, comparative to heaven, is just pathetic. It's really, really pathetic. And you could actually get to the point where you just kind of go... Mate, this is sensational. You know, almost, a, I mean, you're not going to hopefully be selfish about it, but you're kind of going, see you later, suckers. All right? This is going to be gold. This is so good. And you actually see it because you're not freaking out about the fact that you need to be punished anymore because all that stuff that brought about death and that fear of death is now gone. Jesus has taken it away. You know, and the devil comes up to you with his AK-47 and you just go, buddy, even if you do get to take me down, right, not in the judgment sense because I've... I've got all this sin, but even if you do take me down and you do bring about my death somehow, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm not scared anymore. And I get to go and be with Christ. It's your doorway into bliss. That's what it is. And you've got to get that. And, and you see, if, if all the death and all the sin and the wrath and the judgment's been taken away, there's only good left. And you know, the only thing really that you've got left, which is really important, but the only thing you've really got left is that you leave a bunch of people that you love. Every single person that dies goes to a better place than you. They just do. And I, I, can, I can fully understand the human impulse. But sometimes when people die and they go, I just wish I could bring him back. And I'm just going, are you serious? Like they'd go, you idiot, what did you pray for my resurrection for? You know, like it was such a good place to be in, you know. And God still does have purposes, doesn't he, on the earth. So sometimes he does raise people from the dead. But it's such a sweet, sweet place to go. And you've got to see it that way. You've got to see it as bliss. There's a couple of scriptures, I think one that uh, Faye referred to before. It's so important to die well. And, and this is where we're going to finish today. I just want to ask you the question, do you think that if your day was to be tomorrow, would you die well? And the broader question, what does dying well even mean? How, do you, how does someone die well who's a Christian? Well, this would be one way that, you're, uh, that you could die well. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You just do everything to God's glory and you could even die to God's glory. Couldn't you? I mean, you'd probably say that Adonai Judson died to God's glory. 
I mean, if there was ever such a thing as a good death, that would probably be it. I mean, ultimately, a good death is what Jesus died on the cross. And then every time that someone in faith dies in the faith, dedicating their life to God, it's a good death. Isn't it? That's a well-spent life. But this scripture here is probably the most pertinent one. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Big idea here, if you have that scripture running through your head and you live your life like that, I'm here for Christ and if I'm not here for Christ, it's going to be my gain because I get Christ. And this is not because life is hard and you just want to get out of the pain. This is because you actually love Christ. I'm going to show you a, uh, a quick clip from uh, Desiring God which uh, might be helpful in explaining this a little more. That's how you die well. Life is about Christ. Death is about Christ. If at death you lose everything that makes you happy and everything that gives you significance and Christ is enough, you die well. If you don't, you don't die well. A final question from John Piper. Just to, for some kind of self-reflection or self-assessment here. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters. It's pretty good, yeah? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? You know, the scary thing about that is if you're sitting there and at the depth of your being you're going, yeah, I reckon I could. You're in trouble. Often I have conversations with students at the school that I say, well, I want to go to heaven but I don't really love Jesus. I just go, well, you don't want to be in heaven because it's all about Jesus. <laughs> heaven will be hell for you. I mean, maybe if you say, yeah, I reckon I could be happy in heaven. Maybe it might even mean that at best maybe you're really backslidden. At worst, it may even mean that you're not a Christian. Wouldn't it? Because that's what's unique about Christians is that they actually want Jesus. This is like, I don't just want his toys when I get there. I want him. That's what I want. And the toys won't be enough for me. Polycarp uh, was a disciple of John, the disciple. And Polycarp's martyrdom stands as one of the most well-documented events in antiquity. The emperors of Rome had unleashed bitter attacks against the Christians during this period and members of the early church recorded many of the persecutions and deaths. Polycarp was arrested on the charge of being a Christian, a member of a politically dangerous cult whose rapid growth needed to be stopped. Amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim Caesar is Lord. If only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer a small pinch of incense to Caesar's statue, he would escape torture and death. To this Polycarp responded, 
86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs and thus was burned alive at the stake. What Jesus has done with death means that you could do that. You could. The same spirit that was at work in Polycarp is at work in you. Do you think he died well? He died painful. Burning to death is painful. Not that I've done it before, but obviously. But it's painful. But he died well, didn't he? Because he knew there was something else going on with death than what he thought. Why don't you pray with me? God, I pray that you'd make us at the project here uh, extreme risk takers for you. Not just for our own esteem or our own reputation, not so we can put a YouTube clip up and get a whole bunch of views, but we do it for your glory, that you'd help us to work out how to live a life that's totally dedicated to your glory and die a death that's dedicated to your glory. God, I pray that you'd, uh, people would look at us and think, oh man, I couldn't do that. In the same way that we look at Adonai Judson and say, oh, I don't know whether I could do that. I pray that you'd help us to be risky for your glory and for people's good. It might be really good in this town, Lord, that we've got 10% of people going to church, but that means 90% are going to hell. And we love them and you love them. And so I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to feel that edge, to feel the edge that uh, Adoniram Judson felt and to see death differently and to just see life differently too. That we'd be dominated by thoughts about you and what you want to do and how you want to change people and how you want to rescue and save people and that we would spend ourselves, we'd spend our days on your purposes and what you want to get done and that as we lose our life in you that we would find it. God, I pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning who uh, is having those nights where they're thinking about their own mortality and there's fear of death has got a sharp edge to it at the moment, I pray that you would help them, that you'd help them to process this stuff in the details not as just a nice thought but you'd help them to process it in the details of their life and that you bring about change and a different perspective. And Lord, I'm sure most of us will probably have to deal with this again. As Faye mentioned, we'll have to deal with it again. It'll come up. Just when we think we've got it worked out, it'll probably pop up again. And I pray that you would keep reminding us that you've changed it all. What you did changed everything about death and makes it different. Amen.